0: welcome to UO today i'm paul pepus director of the oregon humanities center my guest today is aaron moore associate professor in the department of architecture and in the environmental studies program at the university of oregon moore's professional practice research and teaching explore architecture in the context of environmental ethics fossil fuel consumption carbon sequestration and climate change moore was one of two american among 12 global experts in art media design and architecture asked to contribute to the United Nations' first experts summary report on harmony with nature addressing earth jurisprudence which was presented to the UN's Division for Sustainable Development in 2016. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So let's begin by uh asking you the obvious question, what led to your interest in architecture and the natural environment?
1: It's a hard thing to explain, interest in architecture and the natural environment, but I feel really lucky to be able to bring them together. And I wasn't always sure that that would be true. Mm -hmm. I um, was raised with the understanding of the built environment being sort of the antithesis of all that was good or Mm -hmm. all that is good. (laughs) And so the idea of going into the development of this built environment um, was not something that was seen as you know, fulfilling positive contribution to society. Mm-hmm. I was really excited in the late 1990s to hear the phrase green architecture mm-hmm. and it probably wasn't more than a month after I started to read that I was um, going through the process of starting or gradu- er, uh, applying for graduate school at University of California Berkeley And in is architecture. Is Berkeley's
0: mm-hmm. program particularly strong in green architecture?
1: At the time, it was the place to go for that.
2: <laughs> okay. okay, okay.
1: <laughs> Now I would plug University of Oregon. Ah, yes, as, of its, course. For its of strength in, in architecture related to the environment.
0: So t- tell me about some of the premises that structure your research. What does green architecture mean to you mm. in your work?
1: Right. So that's not necessarily a phrase I use anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the premises that structure my work, I'm interested in in the idea of design or making and the processes of coming up with new ideas through designing and making as a way of exploring ideas, um, especially ideas about the way that we are thinking sort of ethical foundations or values, especially related to uh, human roles in the broader environment.
0: How would you, if you wouldn't use the term uh, green architecture, Mm. what term do you favor to describe the kind of work that you do? Uh,
1: Architecture.
0: Architecture.
2: <laughs>
1: right. Got it. Right. I understand. So You know, I think that many of my colleagues, and I probably also sometimes, and my students are also talking about sustainable architecture, mm-hmm. but um, that is loaded as well in ways that uh, I'm uh, not uh, totally uh, comfortable uh, with.
0: Okay. <laughs> so tell me how you understand the relationship between design and the environment.
1: Between so design and, and the natu- environment. natural environment, yeah. Yeah. So I, I am interested in the way that designed things Mm -hmm. manifest views on the environment Uh or you could say manifest value systems manifest in particular environmental ethics everything that's designed manifests some way of understanding human relationship with the rest of the world so this question of um, how design relates i think it, it becomes a demonstration of a value system maybe it reflects a value system or a worldview or an ethical foundation or, or maybe the process of designing something new maybe shapes a new one. We could say maybe would I dare compare design to literature in the way uh. that both are both reflecting cultural values mm-hmm. and possibly and sometimes shaping mm-hmm. cultural values.
0: Feel free to make that comparison. I, with I your think permission. I think it's the case with all creative endeavors mm. on the part of human beings. Mm. Um, so you have an, uh, uh, an architectural firm called Float. Mm-hmm. First of all, tell me why it has that name.
1: Oh, thanks for asking that. So at the time that I founded the practice, I was finishing my graduate work and launching my pr- uh, design practice and also my academics career. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in the physical, and I still am interested in the physical relationships between buildings and ground. Mm-hmm. And I have the understanding from uh, scientists, ecologists who are dear to me, that, the, that a functioning, a healthy ecosystem is a dynamic one. Mm-hmm. That mayb- maybe there is some equilibrium, but it's a dynamic equilibrium. Ground that is healthy is shifting ground. Um, rivers that are healthy are changing their course. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I took the structures classes that, pers- that were designed to teach us how to establish stasis. The mm-hmm. Statics. We mm-hmm. tu- we, ta- we study statics. How do we make stasis in buildings? And it seemed like that intersection between the the n- sort of the goal of stasis in buildings, and then the also this goal of a of dynamic equilibrium or sh- just change mm-hmm. in a f- in a, a functioning ecosystem was um, at, at odds. I at this, So I'm always thinking about ways of attaching things that allow for movement. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm a boater. I'm interest. I like many um, have an interest in anchorage Mm -hmm. and the way that when you are the best fastening for mooring something with tides or Mm -hmm. um, other change is allowing movement, allowing this kind of floating. So the word "float" for my architecture practice is meant to be more broad, but is rooted in this idea of um, a kind of. Uh, attachment that allows for movement.
0: Mm, fascinating. So can you tell us about a, p- a specific project or two that comes out of your practice that mm-hmm. reflects these principles that you've been describing?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned this idea of design manifesting an environmental ethic. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, my practice is experimental. It's meant to use design sometimes in a conventional way with a client, sometimes not, uh, to experiment with manifesting different ideas or we could say um, asking the question if we think this way and then make a design based on thinking this way what happens Mm so um, the writing studio the the watershed Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is not far from here Mm -hmm. was a design that was based on the question of how can in a place that's meant to be wild and sort of richly biodiverse how can you have a structure that would shape the experience for a person in that place that would amplify the hydrology, the, um, the other kind of seasonal changes rather than dampen them the way mm-hmm. that some kind of um, built structure might. So the whole thing is an experiment in how can built interface between or with you know, humans and this um, more complicated world or equally complicated world, not necessarily even separable world, mm-hmm. enrich that or amp- in fact amplify that. and that um, project um, one one of the very specific uh, prescriptions was that the the rain the sound of the rain would be amplified and maybe it is doing that to a fault so
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay so can you just describe <laughs> it a little bit more mm-hmm. and that and since you raised the question of um the sound of the rain mm-hmm. and being amplified maybe mm-hmm. to a fault say
1: why well okay so it's a very small structure it's On the interior, it's seven feet by ten feet. It's a writing studio for my mother. Mm -hmm. It's um, a single, what we call a single wall construction. It's not insulated. It's um, three-quarter inch cedar tongue and groove, floating in dados um, for the of the primary structure. It has a butterfly roof that's polycarbonate, Mm -hmm. and that has. catches the water, makes a lot of noise when it rains, and then that water is captured in a trough Mm -hmm. that also acts as the step for the studio. Um, And so even if it hasn't recently rained, there's still water there, and so it still serves the many species. It's very busy Uh Grand Central Station watering Uh trough.
0: And it's also very... um, it's, it, there are windows that are very significant in the, mm-hmm. in the structure, so that the interface between the structure and the, the experience of the person in there is very much open.
1: Yeah, and I mentioned before this idea that the built environment sort of shapes the way that we might be actually interacting with almost physically. And I think the most obvious reduction of that idea, the simplest example, is that in fact buildings choreograph the way we move and see in space Mm -hmm. and windows are a really interesting example a lot of times in conventional housing for example a window forces a body posture that is like how we're sitting Mm -hmm. or encourages one if Mm -hmm. we're at this height we see from here to here Mm -hmm. um that is um implies a value of a certain kind of view a certain kind of distance Um, the the windows in the watershed are meant to, to curate, draw attention to different ways of seeing. So there's a the really low window where you're very close up just seeing a blade of grass or something that you normally wouldn't think window. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, ones that block the torso view but are really about the, um, the uphill sort mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. thermal uplift where the soaring birds are. Fascinating. So, really cool. yeah, Can you asked me for a couple examples. Can I give another, sure, another yes, design example? And this is one that's just finished, so it is, um, the publication is restricted by the magazine that will publish it, um, but I will be able to share photos soon. Okay. But this is another small, I don't want to quite e- not even say dwelling, a small physical interface for an ecologically complex place for a client. Mm-hmm. And this is a wonderful client who is uh, wor- working on Maui. She's from Maui, from mm-hmm. the island of Maui. Mm-hmm. And she and her family have stewarded a beautiful piece of land, an upland. Mm-hmm. up in Maui. It's called Ulupalakua Ranch Land. Um, she is inseparable from this place. Mm. She loves its wildness. She loves uh, the stories and the, and the, the s- many species that she's come to know over the, the 50 years that she's been visiting this place. It, her portion of this land was not built. She wanted to be able to spend time there and wanted a built interface that wouldn't undermine the kind of um, the hierarchy of the land itself as the thing mm-hmm. and so I agreed to work with her she was inspired by the watershed I agreed to work with her to help her with that she ended up with something that's not a house um, we call it outside house it's um, an outdoor kitchen an outdoor shower under uh, shade and rain cover and it's a freestanding what would be like a bedroom but for napping or I'm saying they're separated across the lava flow. And the the main sense of living in this place is more sort of um, smooth on the land with these very specific functions separated out in this place to be the interface for sort of functioning day to day on the place.
0: How do you access it? You have to walk to it, I assume? There's no road.
1: Um, The road's not that far. Uh And if you really needed to bring a truck up, and if you didn't mind, a few dings, you could get up there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Mm
0: Um, tell us about your participation in the expert summary report on harmony with nature addressing earth jurisprudence for the UN. Okay. How would you so get that gig? Sounds like a fascinating so thing So it's do.
1: really interesting. I am privileged to, to um, have colleagues who are uh, important experts related to earth jurisprudence mm-hmm. from theology, from law, from philosophy. Um, from education, it's really exciting that this program included art, design, architecture, and media all in one Mm -hmm. as one sort of cornerstone of this exploration of what it would mean for the United Nations potentially to make a declaration on the rights of nature.
0: Based similar to their declaration on human rights.
1: That yes, so right. So the United Nations has an important Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, mm-hmm. that is a sort of the gold standard in terms of you know, non-binding, but gold standard in global achievement in human rights. So I mean, the the background on that on that program is that there ha- there are movements globally, especially from the global south, and mm-hmm. in trying to connect um, worldviews, cultural paradigms. Um, that are ecocentric with the kind of global legal framework. So, um,
0: This would be earth jurisprudence.
1: Ju- earth jurisprudence and you know, note that the, the United Nations is not calling it rights of nature and is not calling this program earth jurisprudence, it's hmm. calling the program harmony with nature. Hmm. And that reflects the, f- the idea that legal rights, natural rights are uh, a, cons- a legal construction that is not a part of this global understanding. Maybe you could say it's a Western or Mm -hmm. something more uh, specific to some countries and some cultures and not necessarily the countries and cultures who are leading the movement. Mm -hmm. It's related to this harmony with nature. So um, uh, there is, I think, the rubber meets the road where harmony with nature connects with legal frameworks, with jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. but I, I was really happy to see and was happy to be able to contribute a little bit to this question of what it means for art and design. So
0: can you, can you say a little bit more about h- how you're understanding what it means for art and design to be in harmony with nature? Mm-hmm.
1: So architecture is a synthetic practice, a generalist practice that depends on all these pillars of, of thought and of technology. It's impossible to separate architecture from its, ec- well, it's difficult to separate architecture from the economic, market, and capitalist frameworks in which it exists now here. Um, so I think it's appropriate that a lot of the energy is looking at economics at law philosophy. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think that architecture again is a kind of manifestation reflection or a tool architecture design and art I would be actually be pretty inclusive about this Mm -hmm. is a fantastic tool for exploring new ideas uh, or um, for reflecting on ideas that exist so so my interest in the role of architecture related to the rights of nature is not necessarily as a way of how do I say not um, necessarily Implementing, well, I guess it would be implementing, but but as a way of exploring or being an agent of cultural change.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So, um, can you? I mean, I assume that the two projects that you've described to me mm-hmm. would, in your view, be examples of this agency towards change, uh, uh, ways of it, reconceptualizing, re-practicing architecture. That
2: mm-hmm.
1: I are know, more say something about that. Yeah, yeah I I would say that those two projects are exercises in exploring, exercises in exploring the potential of more ecocentric worldviews in design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, how do you take an existing building mm. and help to make it more ecocentric? So, what, what are some of the problems, let's say, what are the kind of problems that you mm-hmm. would face mm-hmm. if that was the problem you were trying to solve?
1: i want to zoom out a little bit on that question zoom out as (laughs) much as so the case studies that i've talked about Mm -hmm. are really about the relationship between one person sort of or a couple of people interfacing with one particular site and the boundaries in my mind's eye when i'm talking that way are Mm -hmm. not much more than a mile right though in designing those things we're also talking about broader spheres of impact Mm -hmm. um i think that when you're talking about retrofitting or doing adaptive reuse of an existing building mm-hmm. maybe related to the way that that building is interacting or the people in it are interacting with the environment i think then it becomes really appropriate to start talking about measures of architectural impact that are global mm-hmm. maybe we could talk about um, the global warming potential of a building we, or re- as a way of measuring and carbon dioxide equivalents the uh, associated global uh, carbon, uh, greenhouse gas emissions related to a building mm-hmm. um, we can, when we look at uh, building in those terms, in terms of its sort of climate impact, mm-hmm. um, that becomes a really interesting exercise in sort of space and time uh-huh. and also an architectural site because as we know with climate change, um, the impacts of greenhouse gas emissions are um, global. We can't say this is my site of architectural impact. This is my site of architectural a- impact in mm-hmm. this case atmosphere is a really critical architecture site architectural site so we can think about the kind of impact on the atmosphere of a building through its whole life cycle mm-hmm. this is another theme i think in the way that i'm interested in thinking about design is sort of life cycle how th- things have the beginning middles ends and the beginnings again and not um, this kind of maybe a single single use building mm-hmm. but when we think about that we can think about the kind of climate impacts of a building in terms of cons- its construction, in terms of its uh, use phase operations, energy use, and then we can talk about the site of the, the energy protection.
0: And uh, when you say life cycle, you are also thinking about what happens at the end of the life cycle mm-hmm. of that building when that no longer yeah. is being used, it's mm-hmm. falling apart, it's mm-hmm. deconstructed. So this is, you are as interested in the, the, mm-hmm. the ends of that life cycle as you are at the beginnings mm-hmm. and the middle of it.
1: Yeah, now in in my own worldview, I you know I do believe in the conservation of matter and energy. Mm-hmm. I believe that all things come from somewhere and go somewhere, and maybe this is a there's a kind of extreme materialism mm-hmm. in my view of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I do with my practice, I have when I make smaller, th- I have smaller things that I'm designing that I'm calling the borrow series on mm-hmm. the premise mm-hmm. that. The furniture, for example, and, Um that premise that when, as designers, when we're making something, we are borrowing material from the world temporarily for a temporary assembly, and then in the end, it goes, goes back somewhere. So
0: give us an example of one of the borrow, because I've looked at some of those online. <laughs> Tell us about those. How does that work out in practice?
1: Yeah. Um, it is maybe not that, you know, you might look at a piece of furniture that I designed, and it might not look all that different than mm-hmm. something that you might get it, um, I don't know, online. Mm-hmm. From. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the intention is a, a kind of deliberateness of where the material comes from and then also where it goes. So I have uh, some stools that I made that are treated and designed in a way that they split easily for firewood. And um, I was tired of them, <laughs> and we <laughs> <So> <laughs> they <you> served <laughs> us well. <laughs> so it was, it's nice, you know, that's not a, a kind of dead end. Did they have some other other youth. So mm-hmm. you're
0: also a, a, a teacher of architecture. Mm. Um, tell us about, y- you recently did an architecture studio course they considered fossil fuel delivery infrastructure in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that class.
1: Yeah, I want to connect my teaching a little bit to my design practice. Yep, I I'm said good. my design practice is about using the design and making of things to explore ideas. Teaching design studio is fantastic because we can use speculative design, we can imagine designs, mm-hmm. that and so we are not you know, bound by clients or um, the actual construction of things necessarily to test different kinds of questions, different kinds of parameters. And I think it's a fantastic vehicle for thinking about relationships, again, between paradigms or value systems and the kinds of outputs that come from being very deliberate about those systems. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned this studio that we called lines, pipelines, and the... Transcontinental Fossil Fuel Transport in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. Um, That studio was uh, meant to look at the Pacific Northwest as this place that is in between the the continental interior and the fossil fuel reserves there and then export of those fuels to Asia. We're in this territory that some people have called the Thin Green Line. Mm -hmm. It's a rich, contested uh, territory i structured that studio so that students were asked to study the space of the transportation of the fossil fuels um, it's a linear space mm-hmm. um, that's defined by its slend length slenderness i'm talking about fuel lines i'm talking about rail lines mm-hmm. rivers highways um, and then also by the way it's in those lines are interrupted maybe by a protest or a bridge or a port so they learned they mapped out that space they read the uh, executive summary, or summary for policymakers, I should say, of the International Panel on Climate Change 2015. They mm-hmm. became familiar uh, more than uh, their classmates of the kind of cr- current topics in climate change related to industry and energy production. And then I asked them each to write a manifesto related to the space they were, were documenting. So, given what you know about this space, given you what you know about fossil fuels and climate change, what do you believe should be the future of this space? And it was not what is the solution, but what are the parameters that should define this future? And their manifestos really varied. Um, Some students said, at all costs, we're pulling up these pipelines, we're done with fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Some students said, actually, fossil fuels are here, we are going to, but we need to mitigate the dangers to communities along the way who might be subject to um, accidents or pollution Fires, coal like train the, like, the the like happened right after my student. Yes. Yep. Last
2: um, year, last yeah. Last year. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There have been accidents. Yes. Um, and some students were in between. We need to decommission the the transportation of coal by rail, but at the same time we need to be put into place new economies for the mountain states. And so this was what in architecture we call the program, right? The function of the building or the function of the design and then I asked them to propose designs that would respond to their manifestos. And I was really excited by the variety of proposals um, because it reinforced my hypothesis that truly that we can can make progress uh, intellectually Mm -hmm. by using creative processes for generating designs as a way in, in moving from um, value systems to the manifestation of the built environment.
0: Can you give me an example? Can you describe one of these these
2: projects?
1: Yeah, so uh, one student um, proposed a series of um, art installations along the coal, coal train that goes through the Columbia Gorge. Um, I described the third one, which was it's a she proposes a pier out into the columbia river that has a a digital interface that is out in the wind columbia gorge has all this wind prevailing winds from the west Mm -hmm. she understands that those winds that come from the west actually um, could be understood to come from asia she proposes a um, kind of webcam of a major city in asia that hmm. might maybe a city that is the destination of some of the coal that's passing by right over here with a date and time stamp of that city of the moment when that wind left hmm. and that really compresses this idea of pollution from coal mm-hmm. we can worry about coal trains going by and sort of drifting which is a big issue too drifting bits of coal down we can think this kind of abstractly about the kind of global impact of the combustion of that coal. But the, what her project serves to do, obviously, is to sort of compress the space and time of that pollution so you can see some, you know, smoggy, smoggy Asian metropolis hmm. there. So, but they really, that's one uh, you know, wonderful example, but they, they varied a lot.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, I, we have just about a minute left, so this will be my last question. Um, what are you working on now? your newest project? It, can you tell us about it? Let me put it that way. Can you tell us something about your newest project?
1: Um, I am working on a couple of things. Let's see. Um, in 2013, I worked with a team of students from the Kengo Kuma Design Studio at Tokyo University mm-hmm. We, for a design competition. It was a short couple-day competition in his labs in Tokyo. Um, my team won a project, won the, the material equilibrium award for a project that proposed a thatched building in which the thatch runs sort of in a circle This idea of exploring sort of material cycling and the idea of habitat and i am working on building a small prototype this mm-hmm. is a departure from my client-based work because if you think about thatch it sheds water when it goes like this but it totally fails when the thatch is like this mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this is not meant to succeed as shelter mm-hmm. but it's meant to explore the idea of shelter for f- fail as shelter for humans but it's meant to explore the idea of habitat and shelter in this, um, by changing the way water uh, moves on a surface with this material. How big? I'm not sure, but big enough to go in, but not so big that I can't just do it. Okay. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, all right, Aaron. Why don't we? We'll call it a day there. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today about your practice. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thanks. I've been speaking with Aaron Moore. Associate Professor in the Department of Architecture and in the Environmental Studies program at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.